Please take your Bibles, open to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I want to continue my sermon this week from where I ended my sermon last week. Now last week, last week we looked at 1 Peter and how the gospel should change our desires, how the gospel should change everything about us. And I ended my sermon by discussing um, a sermon by uh, Dr. Thomas Chalmers, who was a Puritan, and he had a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a Higher Affection. And that's where I told you that I have great affections for cheeseburgers, but I have a greater affection for ribeye steaks. And so if you offer me a ribeye steak or a cheeseburger, I am going to choose the ribeye steak because I love it more. I have a greater affection for it. Okay, the higher affection pushes out the lesser affection or desire. Now, Mr. T Mr. Chalmers says in that sermon about our desires, he says, it is seldom that any of our tastes or our desires are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. He says, of course, sometimes they may change, but they're never just going to, usually they never die on their own, our desires or our affections. He says, the heart must have something to cling to, and never by its own voluntary consent will it deny itself of its attractions or its affections. He says, therefore, the superior affection for God through the free gospel of Christ is necessary to remove or displace worldly affections. So, that is the battle that all of us face on a daily basis. Do we truly believe and act and live as though Jesus is better and that obeying Jesus is better than all this world offers, like the song we just sang? Do we love Him and long for Him as we face our daily struggles and temptations? That's what I hope to discuss this morning. Now, I want to give, you, I want to give some acknowledgments before I begin, okay? As I've studied and thought about these things for years, I have been greatly influenced and greatly helped by Thomas Chalmers, I just quoted, by John Piper, by C.S. Lewis, and by John Owen, who have written a lot about this topic. And so if you want to dig deeper, then go read those guys because they're a lot smarter than me anyway. So I don't know where they're, I don't know where my thoughts where their thoughts end and my thoughts begin on this topic, okay? So, let me leave it at that. So, as you turn now to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to talk about the expulsive power of a higher affection. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. This is what John says to us. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now here's the first question I want to ask, okay, as we begin our text. How do we obey this command to not love the world. How do we obey it? How do we obey the command 
to not love the world? To answer that question, I could spend time here explaining that this is a command from the Apostle John that has to be obeyed. I don't think anybody would argue with that. You are commanded to not love the world or the things of the world. Now, let me just say here, the world in this context is not the world of people that God has commanded us to love and that God himself, God himself loves. Think of John 3.16, right? What, 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 what In this verse, John is speaking of the worldly system that is broken and sinful. The worldly system that values and celebrates so many of the wrong things. We are not to love those things. So to be clear, John isn't saying that we can't love the world, as in the people of the world, or even the things in the world, like maybe baseball, or going out to eat, or playing golf. Those are morally neutral activities. John is saying that because of our sinful nature, what we do is we naturally corrupt and misuse those kinds of things in the world around us by our sin. So we're commanded not to love the sinful and deceitful practices of the world that lead us away from following Jesus and obeying Jesus. So I could point that out. This is John's telling us to not love the world. Okay. I could also point out here that all of the commands of Scripture are binding on our minds and consciences as they are commands from God Himself. To disobey this verse is to disobey God. And disobedience is sinful and rebellious. It is always right and good to obey the clear commands of Scriptures. You should do that. Amen? No questions. You should do that. So, do not love the world. And I could argue that you shouldn't love the world and its systems because of how it's described in these verses, right? John tells us that the world is filled with sinful and deceptive desires of the flesh. He says, do not, he says, do, he says, do not love the world and the sinful desires of the flesh, right? The world is filled with it where we misuse our bodies and get involved in things like fornication, pornography, adultery, homosexual acts, gluttony, drunkenness. Don't do that. The world is also filled with sinful and deceptive desires of the eyes, like covetousness, or greed, or envy, where we desire what we see for the sake of sinful pleasure. We see it, and we must have it. Just think of all the money and time that is put into visual engagement. Whether it's social media or TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. You must see, you must look, you must desire, you must have. That's why we have to guard our eyes. Because many times our eyes are the gates to our hearts. Or I could point out the worldly system of the pride of life. Where we desire power and prestige and positions and a authority so that we can lift up ourselves and boast and lord it over others. We can puff ourselves up as better than other people. It's our sinful attempts at glory and honor, our setting ourselves up as our own God and our own Savior. I could argue that way. I could also argue or point out the incredible connections 
between our text and what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve and the fall. If you were to go back in Genesis 3 and look there at the fall of man, it says this in Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now listen to this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desires of the flesh, i got to have food. When she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, the desires of the eyes, I see it, I must have it. Or that it was, and that it was, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, the pride of life. I want to be wiser than all others. She said she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her. I could say, look, that's exactly what happened in Genesis 3. I could also point out the truth here that you shouldn't love the world because none of the desires of the world, none of our sinful appetites will ever give us what they promise. It is a lie. No, ma- no amount of seeking to satisfy your flesh or satisfy your eyes or satisfy your pride will ever be enough. Sin does not give us what it promises. It promises us freedom and joy, but in the end, it's only slavery and death. And that's true. Lastly, I could argue that it is pointless to love the world and the things of the world and to participate in the sinful practices of the world because verse 17 says that they will all pass away. So you're putting your stock in the wrong thing, right? One day God will do away with all causes of sin, so those things you love and cherish will one day be taken from you. So why bother with them anyway? I've just given you here, think about this, I've just given you many biblical reasons and good reasons why you should not love the world. But you know that knowing those truths does not answer the question of how we are to obey this command. How do you not love the world? How does that actually work in your heart? Because most of us in this room know these verses. Anybody heard these before? You better, listen, if, you do not, if you've never read these verses, get a Bible reading plan and read your Bible. Okay? First off, the Bible says it. So many of us in here know these verses. We've heard these verses. We've heard this at some point. And we actually understand what it means. Do not love the world. And we still battle the allure of sin and the pleasures that this world offers. So what else is there? So what is at work here is that we need to actually understand how our hearts work. How our desires and affections work in us. Notice now, looking back at John chapter, right here at verse 15. Here's the key. Verse 15 says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
So the issue here, like I began my sermon, is the issue of fighting sinful desires or the love of the world with higher and greater desires for God. I, it's a battle for my heart to love God most. So here are a couple truths for you to think about and consider as I try to unpack that truth here. Here are my points, okay? There, I think I have three of them. Three very quick points. Number one, you need to understand this about your heart. No one sins out of duty or necessity. No one sins out of duty or necessity. We sin for reasons. We sin because we believe, usually the lie, that whatever this desire is offering will give us something. It will give you joy or pleasure or satisfaction. It might relieve you of temptation or stress. Or it will give you meaning. Whatever this sin is, it must be easier or better or more enjoyable than righteousness, than obeying Jesus, or it's easier than fighting for holiness. It's just easier to give in than to fight for holiness. Be honest with yourself. We freely choose to sin based on the belief that sin will give you something that it cannot. The Bible says that when you do that, you've created an idol and believe a lie and you actually become a slave of what you obey. You become a slave to it, okay? Now, I could give illustrations here. Our room is filled with illustrations here. I could give illustrations here of how most sin starts small and then it grows and grows and it becomes more and more powerful and more controlling and more consuming. Whether that was just one drink of alcohol or one experiment with drugs or just taking one item from the inventory at work or just one illicit image search on your web browser or just one time using a salacious app for a meetup with someone else. In the end, you believed that this would give you freedom or joy, or meaning, or significance. But what you found was enslavement, control, and the actual death of your freedom. You found the death of your freedom. You didn't find freedom, you found the death of it. Because proper freedom in the Bible is not the freedom to sin. It's the freedom to not sin. It's the freedom from sin. That's where we're heading to. In heaven, it's the freedom from sin. You'll still have all your same faculties. You'll still have your same body, a resurrected one. But you you think, well, in heaven, I'll have all the same opportunities to sin. But the issue is, you'll be free from even the desires for it. Because you'll see Jesus, and you'll be like Him. Now, at the same time, think about that. At the same time... We even know in our battles, though, with sin, that we can have moments that break through our entrapment and our addictions and our enslavement to our desires. So just think about this. Think of two people meeting up to go camping, but camping isn't the real reason they're there. They're there for other reasons. They're there to do things that maybe unmarried people should not do, and in the midst of their fornication... 
a bear attacks their tent. Well, what happens? In that moment, their higher affection for living and for not dying takes over their temporary desire to do something they should not do, right? That's what happens. Their higher affection for living displaces this other desire for fleshly gratification, even if it is just temporary. So in this sense, it is difficult to argue that we are completely enslaved to any desire. It's just that our hearts deceive us. And we continue to believe the lie and choose to obey the master of sin. As Voltaire said, it is hard to free fools from the chains they adore. Did you hear that? Voltaire. It is, it is hard to free fools from the chains they adore. That's not nice. But it's nonetheless true. Our hearts sin out of our desire and affection for it. And this brings me to the second truth. So you've never once, think about this in your life, you've never once sinned because you had to. That's why sin is utterly sinful and God will judge it. Because in the end, you did what you wanted to do. That's your heart. That's my heart. Second truth, our hearts do not allow a void. Our hearts do not allow a void. This is the problem. We can try to rip out a sinful desire but our heart is going to replace it or latch on to something else. Okay? Our hearts are made for a purpose. They're made to be fixed and filled by something. That's how God made us. Our hearts are made to be filled with the love of God and the love of people. With a love for honoring God, glorifying God, treasuring God, reflecting God in His holiness, and living in a way that honors, glorifies, and treasures Him as we relate one to another. The issue, of course, in our text is that our hearts latch onto the sinful desires and affections of the world. Our hearts will cling to whatever it treasures. Think about what Jesus said here. Wherever your treasure is, what's going to be there? Your heart. Jesus doesn't say wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Jesus says it the other way. Jesus says wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Okay? Now, 1 John 2.15 says again, if you treasure and love the world, then you will love the world. When the heart is filled with love for the world, it cannot at the same time be filled with love for God. Okay? Think about something being filled. Which again, by the way, loving God is the greatest commandment in the Bible. Now, look back at chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. John gives another th two things that can't be mixed together. You can't be filled with one and filled with the other. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 9. John says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and ab abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness. So think about this. In the same way our hearts cannot love the world and love God at the same time, you cannot be in the light and in darkness at the same time. You cannot love your brother and hate your brother at the same time. If you're filled with love, you're not filled with hate. If you're filled with light, you're not filled with darkness. If you're filled with love for God, guess what you're not filled with? Love for the world. Okay? 
Our hearts will not tolerate a void. Our hearts must be filled with something. So it will be helpful here to think of a vacuum. I think John Piper used this illustration of a vacuum. So if you have a tube, everybody picture in your mind a tube, and you want to get all of the air out of the tube and create a vacuum, right? I'm going to get all the air out of this tube. That's representative of all the love of the world. I'm going to get all this out of my tube. Well, you could use a strong mechanical pump and suck all of the air out. The pump will get all of the air out and create a vacuum. That's science. Woo! And all the science teachers rejoiced. Okay? You can actually create the vacuum. All right? But if you turn the pump off and you release the seals, what's going to happen? What's the tu- is the tube still going to be a vacuum? The tube is going to what? It's going to fill itself with air. It's by its nature. It's going to fill itself with something. Okay? So, the tube must be filled with something. It cannot naturally remain an empty vacuum. The same is true with our hearts. Our hearts must be filled with something. If you really want to get the air out of the tube and keep the air out of the tube, I recommend a second way of doing it. If you want to get all the air out of the tube, do you know the simplest way to get all the air out of the tube? Fill it with water. If you fill it with water, there's no more air in the tube. Now, you, that's the issue. You could simply choose to fill the tube with water. If you replace the air with water, then you will have filled the tube with something that keeps the air out. That's how our hearts work. We must not simply remove love from the world. We must replace it with a greater love and affection for Jesus. That's what Dr. Chalmers argues, okay? He says this, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart. It must have something to grasp and lay hold of, which, if taken away without the substitution of another, something in its place, would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger to the natural system. He goes on to say, even the strongest resolve is not enough to dislodge an affection by leaving a void. So his point is that willpower is never enough to keep the other affection out. You can run that pump all day. Eventually the pump's going to break and the tube is going to fill itself back up with something else. The heart will not tolerate a void. And that brings me to my final point. You never once sinned out of duty. The heart will not tolerate a void. So what must you do? You must fight sinful affections. Sinful affections must be fought with greater affections for Jesus. This is the battle of faith. This is the battle of treasuring Jesus over my sinful affections. Listen, the issue isn't that our sinful desires and appetites are too strong. That's not the point. The issue is that our affections for Jesus are too weak. Okay? That's what C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and pride when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We're too easily pleased. 
And that's what he says. Now this is where the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 comes to mind. Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the treasure in the field. Jesus says this, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, Jacob, what does that mean? Here's the question. Why would this man sell all that he has to buy that field? Why would he do that? Why would he sell everything he had and owned and to work for in his life to buy one field? Well, it's because there's a treasure in that field. And that treasure is more valuable than everything he has, and that treasure brings him more joy than everything he has. Did you notice that it says, in his joy, he sold everything he had and bought the field? He did that because of the joy, the higher affection that he had for this treasure against all other things he possessed. He considered this treasure as more desirable and more valuable than everything he owned. Jesus tells us that that's what it's like in his kingdom. When you find Jesus, you consider him as more desirable, as more lovely, and you find it more joyful to follow him and obey him than to keep following sinful desires and practices. That is a battle of faith that is worked in us by God's Spirit. That's what Romans 8.13 says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you, if you keep feeding your flesh and obeying your flesh and loving your flesh, loving the world, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are to put our sinful affections and sinful desires in us to death by the Spirit. It is the Spirit's job to give us greater, newer affections for glorifying Christ. That is why you must daily walk with Jesus, yielding to His Spirit, being filled with His Spirit, and stirring up greater affections in your heart for Jesus. Now I want to conclude with an illustration that I hope is helpful. I know this has been heavy, but you need to figure this out. I need to figure this out in my own heart, okay? I want to conclude with an illustration I hope is helpful. It's one I've used before. It's the illustration, it's an, it's an Indian illustration of two wolves. And it says this, there was an old grandfather who said to his grandson who came to him with anger at a friend who had done him an injustice. The grandfather said, let me tell you a story. I too at times have felt a great hate for those that have taken so much with no sorrow for what they do. But hate wears you down and does not hurt your enemy. It is like taking poison and wishing your enemy would die. I have struggled with these feelings many times. And he continued, it, it is as if there are two wolves inside me. One is good and does no harm. He lives in harmony with all around him and does not take offense when no offense is intended. He will only fight when it is right to do so and in the right way. But the other wolf, oh, he is full of anger. The littlest thing will set him into a fit of rage. He fights everyone all the time for no reason. He cannot think because his anger and hate are so great. It is helpless anger, for his anger will change nothing. Sometimes it is hard to live with these two, two wolves inside me, for both of them try to dominate me. 
And the boy looked intently into his grandfather's eyes and asked, Which wolf wins, grandfather? And his grandfather smiled and quietly said, The one I feed. Well, why would the one he feeds win? Because one is being starved and one is being fed and nourished. So, put that together with what C.S. Lewis said about our affections being too weak for Jesus. Whichever desire and affection you feed will grow stronger. Now connect that with Romans 8, which which we just read. Make no provision for the flesh. Do not provide for the flesh or feed it or give thought to its care. Do not love and feed worldly sinful desires. Let it die. Or more precisely, put it to death. Do those things that increase and grow and strengthen your love for Jesus. Ask yourself every day, am I feeding my flesh or am I feeding my spiritual desires for Jesus? And do those things that starve and kill sinful desires. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We sing this song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of His glory and grace. This is the key to fighting our sinful desires. Now listen, this is also the key in understanding our salvation and repentance. To come to Jesus by faith is to come to Him at the cost and the expense of our sins and ourselves through repentance. We are saying when we come to Christ by faith, I would rather have Jesus and be filled with Him and follow Him as Lord than to walk in sin and follow the course of this world. It comes down to exchanging being God's enemy to becoming His humble servant. From despising Him to loving Him. From loving darkness to loving light. From choosing rebellion to choosing love and obedience. So let me ask you, do you love the world? Or do you love Jesus? I would encourage you this year to get to the bottom of that. And see if that changes the way you live and the way that you serve and the way that you make an impact in our community. Father, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would stir us up by your spirit, and may we see Jesus, may we fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, and may everything else fade in comparison to him. We pray this in Christ's name.